0: This talk was part of the conference Future Perfect, where actors came from a variety of world-building disciplines, from art and fiction to law and science, explored the uses, abuses, and paradoxes of speculative futures. For more information, visit datasociety.net. Joanna Raiden discusses the writing of Jurassic Park author Michael Crichton. Although Creighton is most famous for imagining an island of dinosaurs, Dr. Radin shows how metaphors in his non-fiction works about computers are even more terrifying. Joanna Radin is assistant professor in the program in History of Science and Medicine at Yale University and the author of Cryptopolitics, Frozen Life in a Melting World. So I'm a historian of science uh, by training, um, and I um, I'm really interested in the question of the future as a historical problem. And um, I just finished writing a book, or I've been spending I spent the last decade thinking about efforts to freeze life, um, not fiction, but reading science post-war scientists' accounts of why it was important to collect blood samples from people around the world and freeze them for the future. Um, I started to realize, oh, this is science fiction. Like, I'm reading science fiction. Um, this, these are these genres. And it got me very interested um, in what other kinds of um, ways. I could think about fiction as a historian of science. Um, and I got interested um, in Michael Crichton for all kinds of reasons, one of which is that it turns out he himself started out um, as um, a biological anthropologist studying human variation um, at Harvard. And I was really stunned as I was researching these scientists who um, were sampling and archiving human biodiversity after the Second World War um, to see Michael Crichton's name among them. He actually has two published papers on on um craniometrics um, so he, he's there he's 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 in there Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. So, um, so this talk is is coming is is new. We're coming out of um, a book in pro- a new book in progress about the kinds of technoscientific subjectivities that are brought into being through science fiction and that find their ways into science. Um, and I'm working to understand, in particular, the interplay of emotions and infrastructures that have made certain kinds of lives and certain kinds of futures possible and thinkable. Um, and I'm actually really. Uh, happy that this talk is coming at the point in the day that it is because I'm deeply interested in fear um, and the emotion of fear and I'm gonna take a different tack um, than thinking about its sort of uh, psychological or neurobiological dimensions but thinking about fear as something that we can look um, use Michael Crichton as a kind of master of um, to understand how how fears function. So I'm going to kind of weave some of my own personal narrative throughout the story I'm about to tell, and I'll start um, in the 90s, which is when I got my first email account. It was the same year um, that I went to my first movie without parental supervision. Uh, The account was from AOL, and the movie was Jurassic Park. Um, So we already have a little they Ian Malcolm, and I wish I had a picture, but I don't. I'm sorry. Um, so as a, as a tween, I was just really psyched to be at the theater without my parents. So I wasn't really appreciating the ways in which Jurassic Park marked the beginning of twinned booms, not only in biotech, but in infotech. Um, and in fact, now that I am a card-carrying historian of science, I feel bold enough to suggest that the scariest thing about Jurassic Park wasn't actually the dinosaurs. It was the computers, or more specifically, those entrusted to use them. And I have um, a clip here that I... So basically what we were looking at here, for those of you who remember the movie, oh, um, um, is the control center at the core of Jurassic Park. Um, and Samuel L. Jackson, a very sympathetic figure, um, you know, everyone in this room basically dies, but this is the guy um, I want us to focus on, Newman, um, who who um, who is... Who's, name in this movie is Nedry which is a kind of like anagram for nerdy Um, and he's uh, you know entrusted with running the whole thing so actually it's good that you can't hear what he's saying he's just talking about how you really need to value me and be impressed by me because I'm the only one who can do this I'm the only one who can handle this and everybody kind of knows it's true Um, and the question that I found myself thinking about as I rewatched this movie many times um, is how was it that this was a plausible scenario that the most important, crucial features of maintaining an island filled with dinosaurs could be entrusted to this guy, not this? Guy, well, both of them, um, but to, the, to, to this guy. Um, you know, he and, and he's 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 a he's a very bad man. Um, but that that. I find terrifying, and I think that there's something there that we need to pay attention to. What is it um, going on um, with with these with these infrastructures? Um, and so here's this moment when we realize, like, they're heading towards the T. Rex paddock, and it's all you know, everything is going go to go is going to go to hell. Um, so a real crucial thematic turning point in in the in the movie. Um, so. What I'm trying to say here is that Jurassic Park is about what happens when the invisible infrastructure holding a world together breaks down. It's a parable of the ways that the technologies designed to entertain and to protect us from our insatiable desire to be entertained are far less autonomous than anybody wishes to admit. Even the dinosaurs in the movie, which represented actually a new moment in cinematic realism, don't exist without computers. And computers don't exist without the humans who design them. It's been said that science fiction colonizes the future, meaning that by inspiring its consumers, inspiring its young readers, science fiction is actively made into science fact. Emotions about emerging and future science and technology can also colonize the future. And one of the most prolific and successful emotional engineers of the late 20th century was um, a Harvard Biological anthropologist and medical school grad named Michael Crichton who authored Jurassic Park. Oh, I just wanted to show this picture. This is a, a you don't you don't see this and it goes by really quick in the scene. Does anyone know who this is? Yes. Oppenheimer, there's a lot of clues there. So there's. I think this image is like really fascinating. Here you have this man who, um, this, this, this sort of scientific hero who both envisioned um, the atomic bomb and then immediately kind of regretted it. Um, his famous quote, I have become death from the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and that's also the beginning of the baby boom. And I won't talk extensively about this, but I'm really fascinated also with the generational dimensions here and the role of boomers. Um, and Crichton being a kind of paradigmatic one, um, imagining certain kinds of futures admitting certain kinds of possibility. Okay, so um, Creighton, Jurassic Park, and um, do- dozens of other novels, including Andromeda Strain, published in 1969, and Dragon Teeth, published last month, nearly 10 years after his death. He continues to be um, very prolific. Um, his scientific His science fictional world got their teeth by appropriating details from the realm of scientific fact. He never practiced medicine, but he prescribed a set of durable fears for a society struggling with increasingly esoteric cultures of expertise. And in the publishing world, he's often hailed as the father of the techno thriller. And simultaneously, he's dismissed by academics and many sci-fi fans as a peddler of pulp. um, as a historian, um, I'm not saying he's the greatest writer ever. Um, I'm not the, all those things are a, a, an aside. But what I want to argue is that Crichton needs to be understood as a key figure in the history of post-war science and its critical study. He was an avid reader of of cutting-edge science, as well as history, anthropology, and sociology of science. If you've read his books, you'll see many of them have bibliographies that are citing people like Bruno Latour. Um, He's reading sociology of science. He's deeply interested in crises of relativism um, and realism, and he's very savvy in bringing that into his fiction. Okay, So he synthesized insights from these academic realms into mass-market nightmares about technoscience gone amok. Now, while there have been far too many efforts to emphasize the techno in his work, there have been much less consideration of the power of the thrill, which we might think of as the pleasure of fear, the pleasure of spending time with fear. And this is ironic. irony being a key feature of Crichton's body of work, because Crichton himself recognized and wrote about academia itself as a, quote, factory of fear, the products of which he nonetheless mined and laundered into a multi-million dollar media empire. So as an early adopter and popularizer of computers, Crichton's writings describe specific kinds of digital dystopias that have come to shape our mainstream fears about digital culture. And I'm not only talking about his fiction, Crichton also wrote nonfiction, including a 1983 book called Electronic Life, How to Think About Computers. This was explicitly marketed to allay fears about the introduction of personal computing, fears he had already begun to stoke in novels like his 1973 Terminal Man, where an artificial intelligence expert is wired to a computer to prevent violent seizures, only to have the computer hijack his mind. Um, Now, what I want to use the rest of my time here today is to talk about how Crichton conflated thinking with feeling fact and fiction to confront the fears in particular of professional men um, at the dawn heterosexual men at the dawn of our digital age and here's just an image of Creighton testifying before Congress about climate science um, so unrelated but to show that he's taken seriously um, as an expert about science and politics and in this role um, um, as writing about computers he was taken seriously in electronic life if you haven't read it it's kind of like a precursor to um, like computers for dummies or computers for for idiots it's like written in that kind of in that kind of way. Um, So (sighs) Creighton um This future, um, the the future that Crichton is describing, our present one, this future past our present one is one that, um, as historian Marie Hicks has brilliantly put it, um, is one of programmed inequality, a systematic erasure of the skill and input of women, people of color, not to mention the disabled. Think about the demographic profile of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Think about Gamergate, where women who dare to create and play in digital worlds or write about them have been the subject to bodily threats. And I'm not suggesting that Crichton caused this violence or that there's a one-to-one connection here, but I'm saying that his body of work gives us a powerful public archive for understanding the emotional conditions of possibility for the programmer, an entity um, more frightening perhaps than a dinosaur. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> electronic, electronic Life was published right around the time of the, the now famous advertisement for the Apple Macintosh. And this is a screenshot of the ad. Um, the ad, which premiered during the Super Bowl in 1984, featured a blonde female athlete shattering a giant screen of a scene from George Orwell's um, 1984, and with it the idea that the computers were only for the elite. So this was supposed to be IBM, then um, this woman you know, reacting against IBM. Now, Electronic Life, which was published just around a few months before, which celebrated the democratization of this new technology, promised to tell its reader, quote, what computers really are, how to choose them, how to use them, how to get them to help you, how to keep them in their place, and how to enjoy them. End quote. It gives you step-by-step inst- Oh, no, not end quote. It gives you step-by-step instructions on what to do when you first approach a new computer to sound advice on how to stop your computer from causing trouble in your family. It sounds almost like a how-to guide for a mi- like getting a mistress. Um, so why should um, you trust the per- that the person writing this book in 1983 knows the first thing about how to make computers enjoyable? Well, because the jacket copy says Michael Crichton, and here's just an image of, an, of a story that was written at the time to see What you were dealing with, Michael Crichton, author of such memorable and best-selling novels as *The Andromeda Strain*, *Terminal Man*, da da da, has for years made brilliant and creative use of computers in each of his three professions: as a doctor scientist, as a filmmaker, so *Westworld*. The reason I started with that image is we all know Crichton came up with *Westworld*, um, directed *Westworld*, um, and as a writer. Now, in electronic life, he shares his knowledge and his love of computers. His message. Don't be afraid of them, they're only machines. They're here to make your life easier, and what's more, they can be a lot of fun. In the introduction, Creighton makes the case for why his reader, who is figured explicitly, and I'll discuss this in 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 just a a second, um, figured as a married heterosexual man, needs to reckon with these new computers. Appealing to the insecure potential user of computers, he asserts, you're a general, not a private. In fact, there are no privates. Step into the mirror and salute yourself, then go out and carry your own orders. And I think there's something to be said here about you're not a private, and there's also no privacy. It's very interesting. So Crichton's unstated goal was to shore up the insecurities of the professional man, a theme that appears throughout his work. The electronic life was marketed to those who were afraid that women were shattering glass ceilings that were simultaneously being replaced by silicon ones. And he says, quote, because I feel that attitudes towards computers are initially more imp- are important than facts. This is a book of my opinions, or if you prefer, my prejudices. So he lays bare the fact that he's telling you what how to, th- how to think, not the facts, how to think, this attitude, this organizational framework for the knowledge he's going to give you. And the book proceeds in a form of alphabetical style, um, index style entry- entries. And the very first one is this. Afraid of computers, it begins, everybody is. The computer is a new machine, it requires new skills, new orientation, new ideas, it's changing our lives, and nobody in his right mind likes that. But it continues, fear of computers is normal, but it's not helpful. People who fear computers cannot use them wisely. Either they reject the machines out of hand, and are deprived of the legitimate benefits of computers or they accept the machines but remain so intimidated that whatever flashes up on a screen is taken as a received truth. You can get into trouble in either way." Okay, now um, he lets his readers know, moreover, that computers used to be people, which is a great sort of story from the history of computing, but he doesn't tell them that computers used to be women. Um, His reader is unmistakably male, and take, for example, another entry, which is titled Widows, Computer, and I don't have a slide of that, but um, I was like, what is, at first first I thought it said Windows Computer, and I was like, oh, that makes sense, but it's Widows, so I'll read you a quote here. He says, quote, marriages fall apart because of the machines. Here she comes at midnight saying, honey, do you know what time it is? You haven't the the faintest idea, and you couldn't care less. Without taking your eyes from the screen, you mutter something conciliatory, and then she goes away. She's back in two hours, stamping her foot, insisting you come to bed. She's a computer widow, and you have a problem. Okay. So, chief among the ways Crichton imagines the appeal, this is why I love history, truth is great. All right, chief among the ways Crichton imagines the appeal of this new machine is that, unlike a wife, quote, the computer makes no demands of its own. It's there to do what you want it to do. And when you get tired of it, you just turn it off. No guilt, no recriminations, just flip the switch and it's gone. It's sort of an intellectual prostitute. And the appeal of prostitutes has never been obscure. So while he does make passing reference to the computer widower, it's clear that she is an exceptional and rare kind of subject. He goes, my own feeling is that widows had better recognize what they're up against. And I can't help feeling that the competition between human beings and machines for the attention of other human beings can only benefit humans in the long run. Computers are infor- information-processing communicating devices, and if they set a new standard for information processing and communication by human beings among themselves, well, we've needed that for a long time. Now, this is not a view- version of the future that is appeal- that I would like to imagine living in. So, okay, I'm going to conclude by saying um, electronic life is best understood as a work of self-help, a guide for a heterosexual and likely white male self who fears the computer itself and its potential to replace him. After all, the famous Turing test was designed not to tell if a computer was human, or, but to tell if you were talking to a woman, right? Um, it's a book designed to appeal to and allay the very fears Crichton stirred up with his fiction, not least of all is this, not least of all his assertion that, quote, people are people, machines are machines, only a fool confuses them. So it was narratives like this that provided a gendered and fear-driven um, organizational framework for facts, ones that intentionally slipped between genres of fiction and nonfiction, between past and future, that led so many of those who could not locate themselves in this depiction of reality to embrace a different approach to thinking about computers. So I'm talking here about um, Donna Haraway and her famous Cyborg Manifesto, which was written at virtually the same moment, okay? In 1984, Donna Haraway made the case for what she called, quote, an ironic dream of a common language for women in the integrated circuit. And in the introduction to the essay, she calls out the irony that was at the core of Crichton's career, not necessarily even to condemn it, but to make legible what he so artly concealed and mass produced. Her point was to take fiction seriously, such that it had the potential to create new kinds of subjectivities, rather than reproducing ones, um, that could produce, create new kinds of subjectivity that could be made manifest, even if those subjectivities were those of insecure professional men. So to say, you know, there are lots of of opportunities in these moments of innovation, especially with computer to create new identities. Let's look at what those are in the role of fiction in creating them. Irony, Haraway w- wrote, is about contradictions that do not resolve into larger holes, even dialectically, about the tensions of holding incompatible things together because both or all are necessary and true. Irony is about humor and serious play. It is also a rhetorical strategy and a political method, one I would like to see more honored within socialist feminism. So far from, the, um, from fearing the machine, from seeking to separate machines and people, Haraway famously wrote the cyborg is a matter of fiction and lived experience that changes what counts as women's experience in the late 20th century. This is a struggle over life and death, but the boundary between science fiction and social reality is an optical <laughs> illusion. Crichton was acutely aware of this and used um, hetero male fear as a way to create the illusion. He and Haraway were both right to identify computer's potential as exquisitely powerful um, sources of social transformation for late 20th century Americans. Crichton made a fortune by insisting, though, on the reality of a boundary between science fiction and between human and machine, even as he performed its effacement. He also helped shape public discourse about what was scary about computers by telling the professional men who dominated those conversations that they had no reason to be afraid, even as he amplified their fears. Electronic life has gone out of print, and the Cyborg Manifesto has never been in wider circulation. Yet, increasingly, it has felt as though we are living in a world written by Michael Crichton, and it scares the shit out of me. It's time to get serious about fiction and attend to the reality of... The illusion, because I'd rather be a a cyborg than a computer widow. Thanks.